0: We'll
1: Hey everybody, welcome back to The Hustle, it's John Lamoureux. All right, as I promised, we are going to be spending the next two weeks talking to artists that are enjoying a resurgence thanks to their appearance on a recent popular movie soundtrack. And if you have not figured out who that is so far, we are talking this week with Elliot Lurie, Frontman for Looking Glass. And Looking Glass are the band behind this classic track right here, Brandy, which was number one in 1972. And it's been enjoying a resurgence the last few years for its inclusion in Guardians of the Galaxy. Now, if you really think about it, Looking Glass's career was relatively short. Uh, they only put out two albums, one in 1972 that included this one, and then one the following year, uh, which included the hit song Jimmy Loves Marianne, which was not as big a hit obviously as Brandy, but that was it. And then Elliot left and did one solo album in 75, and that was the end of it. But he eventually, uh, kind of after he left music, he went on to get into music supervision for films. And as you guys know, I love movie soundtracks. So eventually, after we talk about the, mo- the his music career, I just drill him on some of the soundtracks that he worked on in the 80s. Um, so anyway, I hope you enjoy this conversation. Of course, the big question here is, can you live the rest of your life on Brandy money? And Elliot shows that you basically can. The guy can call his own shots. It's really interesting. You guys may enjoy this one also because he recorded his side of the conversation. And so we both sound really crystal clear in this one, which isn't always the case. And I have to thank the OG producer of ours, Aaron Siret, for merging the two recordings together so seamlessly. Thank you, Aaron. So anyway, I hope you enjoy this conversation. Uh, I love this song. Everyone does. He called me from his home in L.A. I'm really actually really excited to be talking to you specifically because you were one of the very first requests that I ever got from a listener and I've been doing this for about three years and very early on Andy Carlson one of our listeners uh, said why don't you talk to Looking Glass and I remember at the time having to sort of rack my brain a little bit like Looking Glass oh yeah they're the guys that sing Brandy that's right but what's funny is that ever since then I feel like I hear Brandy all the time now and I don't know if it's one of those things where you know when you buy a new car and uh, suddenly you see that car everywhere there's a name for that I don't know the exact actual name for it so I don't know if it's me suddenly like becoming acutely aware of Brandy all of a sudden or if there has been kind of an uptick in attention to that song in your band what which one of those is right do you know
2: uh, the The latter, there has been more attention lately, uh, p- probably exclusively, if not primarily, due to its uh, being featured in the movie Guardians of the Galaxy, That's what Volume I Two, and the way it yeah. was was featured in that uh, movie, and uh, you know the the uh, age group that that. Uh, how big fans of that movie, being exposed to it for the first time. So, yes, it's not your imagination, John. There has been an uptick at least since May of last year. And uh, uh, it's on the uh, iTunes Pop Singles charts uh, every week ever since then.
1: <laughs> that is insane. I mean, I hope this isn't too indelicate of a question. Could you live off just brandy mailbox money for the rest of your life?
2: You want me to call my actuary or my insurance no. agent? I mean, you know, I I don't know how long it's, the rest of my life is going to be, or you know, how much I'm going to need to spend. I, I might, you know, I might I might have a long life and, and be a heavy spender. So I can't really right. answer that question. The way I usually okay. answer that question, and and it has been asked to me before, is the way it was posed to me before is: Can someone live off writing one gigantic hit song? And what I always say is, well, it depends on their lifestyle and whether they wrote 100% of the song and whether they own the publishing. But I think the the, the real version is, and it's true, uh, it has certainly made the hard times easier and the good times better.
1: Great answer. Perfect answer. Um, I think I read somewhere that... According to CBS FM, it is the 11th most popular recording of all time. Is that, could that be right? Or is that just the 11th most popular recording on CBS FM?
2: Yeah, well, CBS FM is a New York, uh, you know, it's a New York oldie station. So it true, depends, you know, true. Who, write, who writes in from Queens and, hey, I love Brandy. You know, I'm from New York City. So uh, okay. that, that's their that's their chart. And that was that year. I don't know that it's, it's still the case either.
1: Okay. I didn't know if, um, if even to this day, it's the 11th most you know, uh, popular song in history or something.
2: like that. You'd have to check with the CBS FM. I don't know.
1: <laughs> okay, okay, okay. Um, all right. So I have a lot of questions for you about, um, you know, the band and how it, how it why it ended, I guess. But let's get the most obvious question that you've been asked a million times out of the way first. Who was Brandy? Why did you write a song about her?
2: okay i have been asked that a million times so i'll try to I keep it, uh, i'll try to keep it short uh yeah. there was no real brandy i had a high school girlfriend named randy spelled r-a-n-d-y-e and i was uh just uh, playing some chords and singing her name uh over it and made up the story over the chords and at the at a certain point in the story i said well First of all, I can't call her Randy because that's an ambiguous name; it could be a boy mm-hmm. or a girl. And secondly, if she's a barmaid, she's got to be Brandy. Uh, but the story itself, I, I was um, I was pretty good uh, writer in high school. I was in uh, in like middle school and high school. I was involved in you know writing fiction and and edit, edit, editing a newspaper and stuff. And I and some of my fiction actually got. Uh, you know awards for local stuff or national stuff for that so I was like a short story writer so to me this was a short story you know set Mm -hmm. to a chord progression and told two minutes and 59 seconds
1: (laughs) perfect okay um now were you and randy long finished by the time you wrote this song
2: I wouldn't say we were long finished, but we knew that we were going to go our own ways. I was already in college, and uh, she had gone off to a college somewhere or something. So, yeah, we, we knew that uh, that we were not okay. going to uh, to to spend the rest of our lives together. Yes, right. we knew that.
1: Okay. <laughs> and I take it she knows this song is about her. She's off. She's someone's grandma right now, and they don't do they. And they may or may not know that every time they hear the song "Brandy," it's about their grandma and their
2: mom she definitely is a grandma because we're in touch from time to time uh thanks to the wonders of uh, facebook and social media we we uh discovered where we were at and uh uh, yes she is a grandma and she lives up in the northwest and uh has become quite a good uh artist Uh, and in fact uh i i got one of her uh illustrations and and have it hung in my house and she, you mm. know she took it up uh, relatively late in life so it's pretty cool
1: That is very cool wow we're going to have to track down Randy and buy some
2: uh, don't Randy know. original don't, art. do no. she, she's very happy doing what she's doing, but being Good. being the being the the, the the name behind Brandy is not part of her lifestyle. So, so sure. please leave, leave her to her. Uh, <laughs> okay, okay. I'm yeah.
1: trying It would be kind of fun to have a painting in my living room that's by the woman that inspired the song Brandy. That would be kind of fun. I have to admit. Yeah,
2: it's it's a it's a pretty cool circle.
1: It is okay. Uh, so I wonder if, cause the whenever I hear that song, I always think the chorus of this song is so wrong and yet so right. You know, you're a fine girl. What a what a good wife you would be. I always think that almost sounds like uh, you know, like a farmer at a stock show picking out a cow or something that he's gonna take John, home to John. <laughs> please,
2: John. Well.
1: <laughs> you know what i mean it's not it's no, more I, like i
2: know what you mean what do you mean yeah childbearing hips you know this woman's <laughs> gonna raise my you know what i mean i'm an old-fashioned guy you know i was, I was born in 1948 <laughs> give me a break oh
1: i was just curious because that's what i mean it's not it's not politically correct but it's so great it says it all you know
2: like i, I say, love it. Uh, you know, uh I can't lie about my age anymore because it's easily accessible on the internet. So my next birthday is going to be 70. I grew up in the 50s and 60s. Uh, I was 21, 22 years old when I wrote that song. I guess 21. Uh, And uh, you know, that's what happened. I will tell you this though. I recall after it became a number one hit, there was an article in Ms. Magazine remember ms B- i don't know if you remember i do it, you yeah know wasn't that the gloria swanson magazine? and yeah, not glorious <laughs> no glorious uh, was glorious sunset boulevard <laughs> glorious right. Who- <laughs> you can't confuse those two john <laughs> very different you're right thank you very different yeah. uh, and there was an article in ms magazine which you know said that it, that even back then in 1972 Uh, well before uh, the current uh, Me Too controversy that it was a sexist song. Uh, You know, because poor Brandy, you know, served drinks and stayed at home while her sailor, you know, ran off to sea. Uh, But, you know, what can I say? I apologize for that.
1: (laughs) No, no way. No need. It's a great song. Everyone knows it. Um, Okay, so let me go back to kind of the, the dynamic within Looking Glass originally, because... You know, as you know, that first album is split 50 50 between songs by you and songs by. Is it Peter Peter. Swevel?
2: Yes. No, Peter Mm Swevel.
1: Swevel. Okay, I've never known how to pronounce his last name half and half. Uh, Was there ever any uh, animosity or jealousy or anything like that? Did you ever pick up on anything like that from Peter that the big hit off that album happened to be yours and not one of his?
2: No it w- there was never any kind of animosity or jealousy uh, the, uh, Peter was a terrific writer, terrific singer, and I you know people occasionally discover his stuff from from those albums um but came from a different musical place than I did I'll, We both I think had uh, a lot of mutual respect for each other's talent, the songwriting, singing uh, he certainly had notes in his range that I don't have um but uh you know at that time we had a lot of influences I mean you know uh everything from Poco and the birds to the rascals and uh, and Motown you know Mm -hmm. um so we had so the band itself and you know that was Part of the uh, challenge that the band had in really getting over was that we had these influences. And when you listen to Peter's songs, when you listen to my songs, they definitely come from a different place. Uh, so the band was not real, you know, the the sound of it was not real consistent. But that was, uh, you know, that was the way we were influenced as a band. We listened mm-hmm. to all that kind of stuff. We listened to everything from the Birds to Marvin Gaye, you know, to, to Tim mm-hmm. Harden uh to to you know to whatever. We listened to a lot of different stuff back then.
1: Uh, I was just curious if it um if it ever kinda bummed him out, you know. Um we always and, gave and, each and, other
2: the B sides. <laughs> you know, good, Pete had the B side to brandy, so he made good money.
1: <laughs> what was the B
2: side? Uh it's called One by One. It's a great song.
1: Sure. Great. It is a great song. In the morning,
3: when I woke up, I used to pray. And in the evening, when I broke up, I'd have to pay. There's no doubt about it We each have gone our separate ways And though you live without it Don't you think that something stays Stay is by
1: Now, why was there not a second single released from that album, or was there, and I just, no one knows about it. Yeah, you
2: you blinked and you missed it.
1: Yeah. What was it?
2: It's an interesting idea, since you just mentioned, uh, you know, Pete's style and my style, or I talked about it. Uh, We released a song called Golden Rainbow, which was a country song that I wrote.
3: I was lost till you found me And you set me on my way
2: I wrote it sort of as a semi-goof. I mean, I like country music. I did then. I still do. I like it a lot. But if you listen to the words, there are like a lot of puns in it. Like, there'll be no more reindeer. Um, <laughs> you know, so it was kind of a goof. Yeah. But it was melodic and it had a nice hook to it. And the harmonies on it were good. And uh, a Reef Barn, uh, who produced our second album, went in and got Eddie Hinton, who was a great, great uh, Mm -hmm. guitar player, to do some overdubs on it before it was released as a single. Uh, But you know, it dented the charts, but nothing, nothing for real.
1: Now, was that um, did you feel as if the label didn't get behind you all the way? Because this is a sticking point. I've done almost 200. I've done over 200 of these, actually. And it is a I never understand why a label who has just made a ton of money off of a band, why they bury that asset? Why they don't continue? We just made millions off of Looking Glass and Brandy. All we have to do is keep this train rolling. Let's get the next single. Let's give it all our muscle and let's make it happen. Why do they not do that? Or did they do that and it just didn't grab anybody?
2: Yes, the second. They did do everything that you would expect a label to do and uh, it just uh, didn't connect with with Mm. the audience um i mean you know they 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 tried their they tried their best they did everything that you could ask of them at that at that point in time anyway yes Mm -hmm.
1: okay so you don't you didn't come away from that experience, at least right then, thinking our label is letting us down. We not at all. number one hit.
2: Not okay. at all. We were signed by Clive Davis. Clive Davis was the chairman of the label. He called all the shots. He was terrific. He's a legend. He was great and uh, did everything that you could. It just didn't connect. You know, when you listen to those two two records back to back, you listen to Brandy and listen to Golden Rainbow, you know, it's not exactly that uh, no. a follow up to tell you the no, truth. No, very different.
1: <laughs> yeah very different
2: um do you have
1: any good clive davis stories i've had some people on here that love him and i've had people on here tell some really crazy stories so what what was your experience like with clive
2: uh clive's an original he's the greatest Ah, i I haven't spoken to him in years so it's not Uh, like and i I really don't need anything from clive so it's not like i'm buttering up but the fact the fact that he's still going and, and still involved and uh you know, the, I mean, you know, you look at his resume and not enough said he was great. Great to me. Great to me.
1: OK, OK. OK, good. Um, OK, this may be too indelicate of a question, as I as I said before, if you don't if you're not comfortable with this. You're all we'll over these it.
2: indelicate questions, are you, John? Well, I I
1: don't mean to be, but so here's OK, this is my question. Peter, after. Uh, Looking Glass goes on to join Stars which is an excellent rock group and then there's a time in the Scat Brothers which is Sean Delaney uh, Bill Coin's partner if you will and he goes on to die of AIDS was um, was Peter gay and if he was was he in the closet at that time or was he out and proud
2: that's an interesting question that I haven't been asked before so I'm mm. going to think about it and answer it as honestly as I can. Okay. Uh, Peter was gay. I was very naive. I I knew nothing, and I would say that for the first three or four years that I interacted with Peter when when Brandy came together and came back, and I had no idea where I was from in Brooklyn in, in the fifties. It was like we we had a very unrealistic idea of what gay people were about and where they existed and all that. Uh, When we had been uh, together for a while, uh, Peter revealed to me that he was gay. It became clear that he was gay. He had a boyfriend. Uh, And uh, to me it was... Kind of interesting and and not and not not something that I expected, uh, but kind of also illuminated a little bit of his point of view both artistically and personally. So uh, I think that's what I would say. Now after after we had the hit and uh, it became you know he he came open about it, but but okay. when the band first got together he was not, and I frankly I was so naive I had no idea
1: right right well you know I ask obviously because it's just such different times back then and nowadays it's not as big a deal but back then it would have been and people would have been encouraged probably to stay in the closet or just do it naturally out of fear Um, and being I mean looking glass is a great kind of pop band stars being such a great rock band it just I wondered if he was uh, you know carrying a load a, a burden or some baggage that he was not able to deal with or had a hard time dealing with. But it sounds like he dealt with it OK, according to you anyway.
2: Well, I, I, when you say dealt with it, OK, again, you have to remember what the times were and, and, and the way you dealt with it then, I guess. I mean, I, I can't say this from you know my own knowledge, but it would seem to me that it was more difficult then to deal with. Uh, right. And he, you know, he wasn't real straightforward about it. And I mean, like I said, I knew him for years before I had an inkling uh, that he that that he was gay. So it was a whole a whole different kind of thing. Um, you know, stars. I know a bit about stars because I'm still uh, often in touch with the drummer uh, Joe Doobie, also known as Jeff mm-hmm. Grobe, who was in both groups. So I know a bit about that, yep. and I followed that. You know, and that that seemed to be something that was. You know uh, that was something that Peter would grasp onto, especially at that point in time.
1: Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. By the way, curious. his yeah.
2: his uh, as far as I know, his estate, because you know he's passed on quite a while ago, mm-hmm. his estate with their royalties from Randy, their share of royalties, is uh, contributed directly to uh, uh, to AIDS research and uh, assistance.
1: Really. That is yes. excellent. Yes. That is great. Good for them. I'm glad to know that's going to such a good thing. Excellent. Okay. Um so the second album comes out, John uh, Jimmy Loves Marianne, great tune. That's also one of yours. Just seventeen, everything that you sing, it's all there in our
3: eyes. So many years of a poor mama's tears and a day of sweet last There's nobody home, Mary Ann's alone, almost fully grown and worldly wise. Jim has been down. like that he don't make mistakes what he needs it takes jimmy gets all the breaks cause he knows how
1: Hopefully, uh, Peter's still okay with this because he's, you know, still writing about half the stuff. Uh, that was a good hit, but not a huge hit or anything. Are you starting to feel, um, is there any frustration kind of building in with you about, you know, what? why can we not get back to this mountaintop again? Or are you sort of like, this is a great ride. I don't care what happens. I'm just playing music and getting paid
2: now i think there was some frustration with jimmy loves marianne with jimmy loves marianne you know we got a chance after brandy to have our second album produced by Arif reef martin who you know i mean he was, an, he was an idol of mine and one of the yeah. greatest record producers of all time so we get this opportunity to work with Arif reef martin he makes you know this album with us and jimmy loves marianne is on there and it sounds pretty good to me uh and it got a lot of airplay and in certain markets like chicago it was a top i think it made it to number two in chicago mm-hmm. uh the the label called it a turntable hit the label said to us it's got a tremendous amount of airplay but it's not selling through uh people are requesting it on the radio so the radio keeps playing it but they're not going down to the local record store and and buying it and that mm-hmm. and uh uh you know it's a different it's a different kind of song than brandy and uh you know it doesn't have a bridge and it doesn't have a story about a sailor and but uh it's cert- I tell you one thing: if you ha- if you're the kind of audiophile who has a turntable and a good set of speakers, and you can have a you find a vinyl copy of uh, the LP with Jimmy Loves Marianne on it, that'll that'll check your system, boy, because it was beautifully recorded by Reef Barn at the uh, Atlantic Studios on 61st and Broadway, and uh, we had gotten a lot better as a band then. And the rhythm tracks pretty. Pretty damn tight, if I do say so myself. And he wrote a beautiful—no kidding. Arif wrote uh, wrote a beautiful uh, horn arrangement to it, so I still love listening to that record. And when occasionally when I get to do it live with a horn section, it's a blast.
1: Yeah, it's so good. And I mean, Arif is a miracle worker. How in the world did you get hooked up? Did you pick him? Did he pick you? How did this happen?
2: Well, it was Clive because you know we had this okay. gigan- we had this gigantic hit and the first album we had kind of produced ourselves, with the engineer and this it was like a, I call it the hunt and peck production system, you know, like on a on a typewriter. We we didn't know what we were doing, but we we got lucky. But mm-hmm. uh, you know, uh, after that, uh, a reef was you know aligned with Atlantic, and we were on CBS at the time, which was you know uh, different. And, uh, yeah, well, uh, you know, a reef worked for Atlantic and we were with CBS and, you know, now that we had had the big hit, Klein wanted to put us for the top notch producer. He suggested okay. a reef and we all like, you know, said, yeah, <laughs> sign us, okay. sign us up. I mean, he, you know, we were all aware of who a reef Martin was. He was uh, a legendary guy. So, uh, we went right to work with him and it was great. Good. Um, what do you what makes him so
1: special do you think i mean he's behind the boards of legend so many countless legendary songs what's what's his secret ingredient uh
2: his uh, his personality his his mm. uh i mean besides his incredible musical acumen uh he was one of the most uh, wonderful gentlemen to work with that you could ever imagine he was mm. fantastic
1: I've heard okay yeah he seems really special that was you guys were lucky um are, are, do you like he would always the, say to
2: us here, here was my, my my memory my my most uh, my best memory of a reef is when you would do a take on the vocal mic he would say to you in that wonderful Turkish accent that he had he would say sounds pretty good but you can <laughs> do better you can do better <laughs>
1: oh that's great oh man what a legend um now, are you happy with Subway Serenade? I mean, do you think that that album holds up? Because the first one is so great, and the second one gets kind of forgotten about sometimes. Are you happy with it?
2: Well, I, th- I think as an album, it's a better album than the first one. Do I ya? mean, first of, all, was, first of all, it was produced by Reef Martin. Mm-hmm. By that time, we were a better band. Uh, we had We were more selective about our material. So I think it's a much better album than the first one. It just didn't have brandy on it.
1: Yeah, <laughs> okay. There, it's a little. It, to me, maybe I'm wrong. I mean, I've I have both these albums and I've listened to them multiple times. The second one seems a little more ballad heavy, I guess, than the first one. But maybe that's. Maybe I'm wrong. Is that just where your heads were at? Uh,
2: you know, I I I haven't checked the tempos on the two albums mm-hmm. lately. It's possible that that it was way. At least it had ten songs. The first one only had eight. <laughs> true,
1: <laughs> true. The first one's over before you know it. 31 minutes, and it's done.
2: That's all we had, John. Yeah.
1: Um, Okay, so the band, why did the band come to an end?
2: It came to an end because after Brandy and Jimmy Loves Marianne, and after what radio wanted and what the record company wanted, it was clear that the sound that everyone thought was commercial was my sound, my Mm. vocal, my writing. Uh, You know, Peter's stuff was accepted well, and but that wasn't the that wasn't where the money was that wasn't the commercial part and you know clive had us in his office one day and he said you know he said you 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 guys do have an image both musically and uh and and uh, the way you look and the way you dress and the way you act but I'm not sure what it is. I think there's more than one, you know. And, and as usual, he, he nailed it. Mm-hmm. So at that point, it had become clear that the commercial sound of Looking Last was my writing and my vocals, especially my vocals. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it didn't make any sense to continue in that kind of neither here nor there world. I mean, the problem was, you know, when we went out to play live, uh, you know, the audiences, I think. Must have been often disappointed because you know they came to a brandy, which is a highly produced pop record with a New York session horn section and all this and that. And we were like a four-piece rock band, and half our material was mine, and half our material was Pete's. So mm-hmm. uh, it wasn't it wasn't a viable entity to promote and to commercialize uh, going forward.
1: Okay, I could see that. Um- so when you go do your self-titled solo album, which I think is a blast, by the way, I think I might like your solo album better even than the Looking Glass albums. It's, I love the disco, Where Are You Gonna Go?
3: Just another secretary working for nine to five. She don't love what she's doing.
1: That was the single off that album, right?
2: Yes, it was. Thank yeah. You.
1: <laughs> I, I think it's so much fun. It reminds me a lot of Starbuck, that band that was, uh, you know, Moonlight Feels Right about that same yeah. time.
2: Uh,
1: um, what uh, were you disappointed when this one didn't really grab hold or take off? I mean, it's got it. Like I said, going back to the second Looking Glass album, you're probably thinking, how am I ever going to get back up to the top of this mountain?
2: Well, it's interesting that that one I was a, a little disappointed in, in in the in the label because uh, not not that in retrospect I think it's that great an album. In fact, there's only three or four cuts on that album that I can still listen to. The others <laughs> I kind of detest to say the <laughs> truth. Uh, in retrospect, I, really, uh, but. Um, But in that one, there was there was a little uh, record company stuff going on. I went off. I was sent off to L.A. to record the album in L.A. uh, and went off and did it. And it was great. I mean, I great musicians I played with uh, and uh, had a wonderful time out in L.A. because I was still living in New York at the time. Aren't the Toto guys
1: on this album?
2: Oh, the Toto and the and the Jazz Crusaders. I mean no. you can't get better guys than that. And I'm no. kind of like a session player groupie to begin with. I love those cats. I mean those gunslingers, I love them. Yeah. But uh, so I go out to LA to record the album and that's when the famous Clive Davis Bar mitzvah thing happened. Do you remember that?
1: Uh, I don't know if I do.
2: What is it? Oh, you gotta you gotta study up on this man. This okay. is important this is important record business lore. Okay. Okay what happened was Clive was accused, there was an infighting at, at the CBS company between Paley and Clive, whatever. Long story short, Clive was dismissed summarily uh, I can't say that word. <laughs> we'll Summerelli. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. You've got it. He was dismissed all of a sudden <laughs> as a result of an inquiry into the funding for his son's bar mitzvah. That's right Okay So he was dismissed Asked to go to his office Clean out his office And after everything He had accomplished Kicked out of CBS And when I came back From LA With my finished album There was a new Head of the label And Clive was gone And Clive Who was a strong believer In me Was gone Mm -hmm. Uh, So I I think That that album Probably did not Get the attention From the label It should have But again I have to say In retrospect Listening to it now There's only two teeth songs on that album that I can even stand to listen to so (laughs) I'm I'm not sure I'm not sure what you know uh, uh, knocked them out anyway
1: I think that album's a lot of fun I got to ask you what is the deal with songs about rainbows
3: rainbow girl you come here every night you spend it Home, making sure your hair looks right. Then you sit down at the bar, hoping that you meet a superstar, rainbow girl.
1: You've got three albums, and each one has a rainbow song. There's Rainbow Girl, there's Rainbow What Man.
3: I was the firstborn son of a lonely soul at best.
1: rainbow or what's the one on the first album anyway what is it with you and rainbows
2: uh, Kermit the Frog feels the same way I... <laughs>
1: yeah is that what it is it just comes down to a golden rainbow that's it it just comes down to Kermit the Frog
2: it's easy rainbows are fun they're nice who doesn't okay. like rainbows
1: okay okay uh, now let's talk I, I, I read somewhere that after the solo album sort of tanked, I don't know if they were coming to you wanting to make another album with you at some point and try again, or if they were sort of like, let's get this guy out of here. He's had his time, we're done, we're moving on. I think I read somewhere that during this period of of slow downtime, you considered becoming a sales, uh, working at Radio Shack, because <laughs> things... That, I don't know if that's just... You know if you're just making that up or if that's true but tell us about you know when you woke up the morning and realized I can no longer make a m- living as a musician what do you do
2: well for, uh, I think the, I think I came to that realization that uh, you know listen I, I had Clive signed me to a singles deal at Arista we tried a couple of records at Arista singles they didn't work at that point, I'm pushing 30. I haven't had a hit in a number of years. Uh, you know, I'm a Brooklyn boy. I'm a realist. I got to earn a living. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, I was, I, I was ready to move out of New York City. There were a lot of, uh, lot, of, lot of reasons for that, but I was ready to move out of New York City. So uh, my wife at the time and I moved from New York to L.A., and uh, I liked it in L.A. I was glad to be out of New York uh, at that point in time. And uh, I didn't know what I was gonna do. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, I was looking for a job. I was, I, I, yes, I, I had applied for a job as a salesman at Radio Shack. Crazy. I have a good friend, one of my oldest friends from Brooklyn, I know him since I'm 12 years old. He had moved to LA, became a successful TV producer. His name is Stan Rogo, good man. Uh, he couldn't let me be a uh, salesman at Radio Shack. He introduced me to an agent at uh, CAA, Creative Arts at the time. Guy said to me, uh, well, he said, uh, you wanna you know, compose music for movies? Is that what you're interested in? I said, well, I mean, I'm a you know, pop songwriter, but I never studied that way. I'm not gonna go compete with like John Williams and Jerry Goldsmith. Mm-hmm. He said, well, maybe with your record industry background, maybe you'd be interested in being a music supervisor. I said, what's that? I had never heard of it before. Mm-hmm. He said, well, he said, it is a relatively new thing. Uh, he said, there's only a couple of people who are doing it really successfully at this point. But, you know, basically, it's putting together like hit-pop soundtracks for, for movies. And he said, there's there's two folks who are really good at it. He named one guy. And then he said, and the other person is this person, uh, Becky Shargo. She did uh, Footloose and... Uh, uh, Urban Cowboy I said Whoa. Well, yeah those were, those were pretty big soundtracks I said wait a second I said is that the Becky Shargo Who used to work for Epic Records on the west coast He says yeah She was my A&R coordinator When I did the solo album That you admire mm-hmm. uh, In LA So I knew her So I Christy. called her up I, I said uh, Becky i uh, I'm, I'm moving to LA uh i don't know anything about the work that you do but i always liked you do you need any help she said yeah i might because you know after these two big hit movies and soundtracks i've got more work than i can handle and i, I don't have anybody to help me out so long story short we walked it we worked it out i i went to work for her she taught me that business and i stayed in it for many years
1: that's incredible um now my regular listeners know I have a sort of an obsession with movie soundtracks especially ones Mm -hmm. from the 80s that I grew up on and there are three in particular that I want to ask you about and for and being a music supervisor for a movie for movies is like my dream job so these might get a little nerdy but let's start with um, for instance the movie perfect I believe you did the soundtrack to perfect
2: right I was I was working for Becky. Uh, I had just started working for her. That was one of the first movies on our, uh, you know, on our plate when I went to work for Becky. So, yes, I helped Becky. on perfect.
1: Now, when you say help, what does that mean exactly?
2: So, well, uh, yeah, I didn't know anything about this business, and she, you know, she knew everything. Uh, we had there was a, a the old Record Plant Studios on West Third Street in L.A. Long gone. Okay mm-hmm. uh, In the back there was a room It had two desks pressed up to each other With those old fashioned phones That had you know When, when a, a call came in You pressed the button that lit up And that was the line that you took You know yeah. And I sat across from Becky for, for three months And listened to every conversation she had And kind of learned what, what to do So yeah when Perfect came around uh, I, I helped her with, with some of the You know some of the grunt work Does the grunt work include like, are you selecting
1: songs? Are Are you pitching songs to people? Like for instance, the Jermaine Jackson song, Perfect. and say, hey, we want you to record a theme song for this movie? Or how did that did that?
2: that we, we knew that the soundtrack deal, we had made it, Becky and I, in, in conjunction with the studio, which I believe was Paramount, although I don't recall, uh, made a deal for the soundtrack album to be out on Jermaine's label, which I guess at the time was Arista, because both mm. Becky and I knew Clive real well because we both had been with CBS. So Clive agreed to put it out, and Jermaine was an artist on Arista, said so, well you know he he could use something uh, tied into a soundtrack or, and you know and that's how that came about
1: that's great okay now let me ask you about nine and a half weeks um you know there's obviously joe cocker's version of you can leave your hat on that accompanies that really sexy scene are you is this an adrian line decision he was the director of that movie does he come to you guys and say i'm imagining a scene, I want to choreograph it to Joe Cocker singing the song, or do you go to him and say, we have the perfect song for this scene and it's this one? How does this work?
2: I don't recall the specifics of that scene exactly, but I I will tell you this. uh, Music supervision, especially when you become on the front line. I mean, when I worked for Becky, she was definitely the front line and I, you know, I, I backed her up, but later on I became the front line. A lot of it depends on the director. If the director has a real good sense for music, you take your lead from him or her very often. Uh, Sometimes you just have to guide them, and sometimes it's not very creative, frankly. It's it's very administrative and and a lot of business affairs and things like that. But going back to nine and a half weeks, Adrian Lyne was such an interesting character. Becky took me to see the rough cut of the movie nine and a half weeks and it was basically the rough cut was almost in real time I mean it felt like it was nine and a half weeks it was about four and a half hours long (laughs) it was it was really long and uh, but you know of course so so interesting and uh, Adrian and I was great asian line had a very good i mean he did flash dance, so i mean you know mm-hmm. the guy understands music and movies uh, uh, yeah. yeah so as i say for, for each movie is different the specifics of the joe cocker song frankly i don't recall okay. uh, how that came about uh, you know how it came about but when you're doing music supervision a lot of it depends on the director's intuition and natural feel and knowledge of music and music for film
1: Okay, another song off that off that soundtrack is John Taylor's "I Do What I Do." he you know was not a solo artist in fact i think that's the only thing he's ever done i read his book uh which was very good if anyone's interested and he mentions in there i think that he sort of tried dipped his foot in the solo pool and this was it and decided it wasn't for him who's i do you remember anything was it your whose idea was it to pull john taylor specifically out of duran duran and say we want you to sing the theme for nine and a half weeks
2: You want me to be perfectly honest, John? Yeah. I don't remember a damn thing about the song, about John Taylor, about the title, (laughs) or anything about it.
1: That's no fun. (laughs) I
2: remember how I remember how Bread and Butter, the cover of Bread and Butter, went into that movie, and I remember how uh, the opening song came into the movie, but I don't remember a damn thing about
1: the John (laughs) Taylor song. Well, then tell me about Bread and Butter. I have a theory here and I've mentioned this on here before Devo was a great band that everyone knew was great but never quite caught on and they are caught on on like a massive scale and yet they are on multiple multiple soundtracks and I've always had a theory that the reason for that is that people their label or whoever just kept thinking maybe if we put Devo in this movie that will be the thing that finally puts them over the top and it never quite did. But they were they were on multiple soundtracks back then. What's the Devo story?
2: This is just my hunch. Yeah. I think they had a special appeal to movie makers. I know at least two directors and one fabulous T V producer, writer director, who were huge Devo fans and I must have licensed a half a dozen Devo tracks just for those three filmmakers. Hmm.
1: Interesting. Okay. That explains that. Good. Now, another one less than zero, uh, you know, it's still iconic to this day. Hazy Shade of Winter by the Bengals. Whose idea was that? Do you remember anything about that one?
2: Yeah, that album creatively was basically uh, Rick Rubin. That's what uh, I, thought. I, I didn't have, have that much to do creatively with it, except for one engagement with Rick Rubin about that particular track. He delivered a a final mix that was very stripped down, hard rock, real nuts and bolts, Rick Ruby. The girls thought that it had a shot to be a hit, and they wanted to do some overdubs, do a remix, do this, and Rick was adamant. No, it's it's great the way it is, great. And I was kind of the uh, go-between, the girls and Rick. Mm. And how to massage the politics of that. Politics of that. And and music supervision is a lot of politics. Uh, anyway, we got them back into the studio. They did their overdubs that they want. And in my opinion, it may not have been the final record that Rick Rubin envisioned, but the girls' ideas are what turned it into a, a hit sing. Mm.
1: Okay. Interesting. That's a great song. I was just curious if you were how you were involved. But... Um... Sounds like it was a Rick Rubin thing. Yeah. Okay.
2: Music Supervision, uh, when when you sit at home, John, and dream about it being your perfect job, it it has a lot of uh, different ways of going. It depends on the project. It depends on the people involved. Sometimes it can be a very creative job. Uh, sometimes it can be a very frustrating job and a lot of administration. Uh, it depends who you're working with and what the particular project is.
1: Okay. Okay, that makes sense. Um, Now, I know you did a bunch of other soundtracks. Are there, can you tell us a story that, you know, there are a lot of things I brought up you didn't really remember or have anything interesting to say about them. What were some of the interesting stories? What are the ones that leap to mind?
2: I have very few gold records and posters in my home, but, uh, but uh, one movie poster and platinum record that I have are from a movie called um, Last of the Mohicans. Mm-hmm. Last of the Mohicans was directed by Michael Mann. Michael Mann created um, oh name escapes, the famous 80s my, show with the Miami music. Vice. Miami Vice, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, my, so he certainly knows his way around music and, and, and picture. And he had a concept for this movie musically that I did not get for the longest time. And at the time, I was an executive at 20th Century Fox. So it wasn't like I was an independent music supervisor. I had to watch the studio's budget and all that kind of stuff. And he was spending a lot of money. He had a composer with an orchestra going over and over and over. And, you know, and it was very frustrating to me. And then, I forget the exact moment in time, but when I saw the way what he was asking the composer to do worked against the picture. I said, you know, sometimes somebody else is the smartest guy in the room and you just gotta <laughs> shut up and listen. Um, the album is, except for one track, it's all orchestral music. Yeah, It's double platinum. It's a huge perennial album seller. Uh, the movie was a great hit, uh, you know, and and yeah. uh, so, so I, I think, the most interesting thing to me about it, the music was great came out great and the album sold very well um but you know sometimes somebody else has a creative concept that you may not get right off the bat you know don't don't dismiss it too readily sometimes uh, sometimes they may know what they're talking about
1: that's very wise very wise um by the way the one song that's not orchestral on that soundtrack uh is by Clanad. i think it's called exactly I will follow you or I
2: will find you. I it's love like, that song. Very, love, yeah. That it's song. like that Irish, you know, yeah. Irish. Uh, yeah, it's it's good, great. That's but good but if you ever get a chance to see that movie, there's a, a sequence in that movie where the Native Americans steal the steal the woman, and they're walking through the hills, and the scene goes on for quite a long time, and the the orchestral music behind it is almost this repetitive kind of uh, Scottish, early American. Uh, thing that uh, played by an orchestra and
0: mm-hmm. goes
2: on and on and on it's basically around you know what you call music around yeah it goes on for quite a while but it's so effective and so great and when he had those guys I mean he's got a 90 piece orchestra I'm watching the the budget you know he's got them in for days playing the same tune over and over again and I'm like freaking out and when I saw it up against the screen I said I get it
1: it works it works yeah I don't think I've seen that movie since it first came out. I need to check it out again. It's been a long time. So why did that particular why did your time in Hollywood come to an end?
2: Uh, I had a lot of bosses at that job at 20th Century Fox, and finally they hired a boss that didn't get along with me and I didn't get along with him. So my contract was not renewed. I don't know whether I would have renewed it had it been my choice but i spent a good 10 years there and then i spent another good seven eight years after that going back to doing it as an independent contractor
1: so uh, really i didn't realize that so when you do this as an independent contractor what does that mean do uh studios like working for
2: becky except you know it's my name on the shingle instead of hers so they hire you as an independent the the studio or a director recommends you or calls you and uh you know you, you do it uh for hire the same way Becky's business did.
1: Okay. And um, now, these days, I believe you're doing a lot of like Yacht Rock review type shows and those package, those wonderful, by the way, package shows of there's you and Stephen Bishop and Orleans and Ambrosia and Al Stewart and all those kinds of people playing together, Christopher Cross, you know. Um, is that sort of how often are you doing those nowadays?
2: Uh, I'm doing them, you know, as o- as often as I would like to. I-, I guess what that means is is that there are enough of them to keep me as busy doing that as I want to be these days. Uh, sure. It's a wonderful thing. I mean, what the Yacht Rock Review guys out of Atlanta, they're the greatest. And when they call me, I guess a bunch of years ago now, uh, and explain to me what this thing was and, and put me on it uh it was great and i'm I'm doing another two shows with them uh, later this month Uh, it's just a really great fun thing for me
1: that's great perfect so between that i mean that probably scratches whatever performance or musical itch that you might have and you get to do that as often as you want plus as you mentioned earlier we won't get into details but the you know the mailbox money that comes in from brandy periodically those things together probably provide a decent a comfortable living for you and when I say comfortable I don't just mean financially I mean satisfying like a from the soul this is I get to do what I want to do I get to enjoy the spoils of my work
2: well listen you know I, I, there, there are so many important things that go on in your life besides besides your your, your job or your, uh, your artistry I mean you know I have a family I have kids that have grown uh, I have a, a wife I have a stepdaughter Uh, so you know those are things that at my age are important to you Uh, the economics of it have worked out fine for me you know in my uh, uh, but you know uh, so hey at my age I ought to be retired if, if if i if i hadn't been a musician if I had been a postman, I would have been retired for fifteen years by now sure a school teacher so you know that, that that's okay and and yeah. uh you know uh, be, between brandy and again i I had almost a almost a twenty five year career as a pretty successful music supervisor in hollywood Incredible. you know so uh uh like I say at my age i 'm retired uh, I get to play these gigs with Yara View and other great people. Uh, from, from time to time enough, uh, not only enough to keep me busy but frankly if I get any more of them I think it might be a little bit too much for me <laughs> at my age wow. uh, uh, so, so that's fine and you know when I enjoy my family I, I enjoy a life so it's all good yeah? Good,
1: good I'm glad now uh, one more indelicate question for you do you get mailbox money for Hazy Shade of Winter because that's probably the biggest hit off these soundtracks we've been talking about
2: uh no i don't because okay. i was say i was an employee of 20th century fox at that time got it and uh i did not uh, uh you know as, as an employee uh, as an executive at the company you did not get a okay. you got a salary and a nice bonus good
1: got it um i probably didn't articulate well enough at the beginning the reason why this podcast is called the hustle is because we try to focus not focus entirely but we try to touch on how legacy artists maintain careers over the long haul and some do them do that successfully like you and some have had to go get other jobs and that's fine too but uh so that's kind of why i asked some of these questions because i think people well, are interested I, you know i i
2: i understand i understand and i listened to a couple of things on the, on your podcast and, and oh. i appreciate that i tell you i tell you one thing that's interesting to me john is that you know in going back down and playing out a lot of the people whom i perform with have been doing this nonstop. Since they had their hits way back then. Now, I had a whole nother, you know, different but associated career in between. Mm-hmm. And I'm now back to doing what I did 35, 40, 40 years ago. Uh, and the difference is, is, is interesting um, to me. Uh, and, and the, you know, guys have had varying success and they've all gone through their ups and downs doing it. I think in retrospect, I was fortunate in that I was able to sort of stay associated with music, but find something that didn't require you, you know, just maintaining that quote-unquote career for that many years.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Well, I think it's really amazing, Um, and you're right, you've had it better than a lot of others in other ways, but it's still, staying in music, staying in the music business, Um, you're very. You're very lucky and very blessed it's worked out for you the way that it has. Um, Now, in closing, I want to ask you, tell me tell me a story. Tell me a crazy or a fun or an exciting story where you got to hang out with somebody that's a hero of yours or you saw something you couldn't believe you saw or a groupie was especially great or whatever (laughs) you tell whatever you're comfortable telling me. you tell me a story that we're, that we're going to just love as we go out.
2: Okay, here's one of my favorite stories. It's September, Labor Day, 1972. Uh, Brandy is number one on the charts everywhere. We're booked to play uh, the um, steel pier in Atlantic City. Now, many people are too young to remember, but before Atlantic City had gambling legalized and all that, uh, since the early 1900s, it was a place that people came Uh, to go to the beach and they had this famous steel pier. The main attraction at the steel pier, as cruel as this sounds today, but this went on for years, the main attraction was a diving horse. This was literally Mm -hmm. a horse that walked up stairs with a rider to a uh, diving board Mm -hmm. and on cue would dive, I mean, it wasn't like a, you know, real high, but would dive into water. nothing, you know, there was nothing politically incorrect about that. That was a main attraction at that place for years. So we go to the Steel Pier. We're opening, well, I think, other people on the, on the build were Danny Benid- Bonaducci mm. and uh, uh, oh, uh, the great, great uh, jazz band leader and songwriter, Duke Ellington mm. and his band wow. and his orchestra. So it's, it's Danny Bonaduce looking glass, Duke Ellington and the diving horse. Anyway, so you have to walk down to the end of the pier, which is about a mile and a half, I'm counting on counting our guitars, we go down to the end of the pier to meet the promoter to see because we had to do three, four shows a day. And we said, and we're number one in the country. We got the number one record; you can't get it off the radio. In New Jersey, don't forget. We go out to the end of the pier. We meet the promoter, and we say to him, "Okay, you know, we see the stage. He said, What time do we uh, we go on?" I know we have three shows a day. He says. Uh, you see that horse up there on a the diving board, and this is in his, you know, best, uh, best uh, Jersey accent. He says, you, "You see that horse up there on a the diving board?" He says, "That that horse is going to jump in that pool. When you hear that splash, you hit it." <laughs> Put it in perspective for us, having a number one record.
1: That is great. When that <laughs> when that horse hits that water, you nail it. That is when you hear so, that
2: splash, you nail it.
1: That is amazing. I love that story. Well, thank you, Elliot, for talking to me. I think you're great. And
2: uh, I've been curious about you for three years. Just just so that you and your listeners know, I will do one shameless plug, even, even though it's, it's, it's do. not really a, a commercial plug. So if you if you look, uh, if you search me on like Apple Music or Spotify or any of those under Elliot Lurie and not on the Looking Glass You know i still write because if you're right you gotta write and Mm -hmm. you know uh i have a you know a little studio in my home and i do stuff so if you're interested in what i'm writing and singing these days just search it on uh on uh one of the music services or even on uh youtube and you'll find some of the stuff and maybe you'll like it that's funny you say that i was going to
1: close out because we play a song at the end And I was going to close it out with one of those songs. Um, I see Better Man, I see True Believer, I see Goodbye Heart. Uh, You tell us, what song, what one of those would you like us to close this out with?
2: Well, I tell you, Goodbye Heart is the mostly true story of how I met my wife. We've been married about three years now. Uh, You can play that one. Okay. And if anybody even halfway likes it, I would direct them to my YouTube channel, which has the most funky DIY video shot with iPhones that you've ever seen, but it's kind of fun. I like it. Perfect. Yeah. Do good by heart and take it from there.
1: We will. Okay. Thank you so much, Elliot, for doing this with me. I think you're great. There you have it, Elliot Lurie. Now we know Brandy pays the bills. I would have never guessed, but it it makes sense. And did you notice this is the second week in a row in which the guest has sung the praises of Yacht Rock Review. Um, Ravi Dupree was actually kind enough to put me on the guest list for their show. They're going to be here in Denver this weekend. So I'll be able to go see for myself what all the hubbub is about. I'm excited. I might even see if I can get them on the show. That might be an interesting story to tell. Anyway, um, one thing that did not come up in this conversation, and I wish it had when this was done before Aretha Franklin died. And when Aretha died, Elliot posted on Facebook that he had worked with her on her version of Jumpin' Jack Flash from that movie. And if anyone remembers my conversation with Steve Thompson from last year, that's one of my favorite covers of all time. I love love that song. And so I wanted to play it as a bonus song. After Elliot's track here that he introduced, we're going to play Aretha's version of Jumpin' Jack Flash that Elliot had a hand in um, in putting out there. So anyway, wanted you guys to know. I, once again, a huge thanks to OG Aaron Syrett for helping us put this together and then also Yan the Man for putting in all the songs and all that kind of stuff as well. It was a joint effort. Thanks, guys. And you guys know the drill by now. You can find us on Facebook and like our page. You can send me an email at thehustlepod at gmail.com. Or you can find us on Facebook at The Hustle Pod. And next week, we're going to be closing out this Yacht Rock string we've been doing with another band that is big from Guardians of the Galaxy and enjoying a, uh, a resurgence. Maybe you can already guess who that might be. All right. We'll see you guys next week.
3: The truth will set you free And it bundles you, eyes blue With those skin tight jeans and that old tattoo